Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. Today we are speaking with Kim Foss, who is a genetic counselor and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Genetics at the UNC School of Medicine. I went to the University of North Carolina uh, for undergraduate and I was pre-med. So I was pretty much determined. I I thought I was going to go to medical school, um, but it never fit 100%. I always just kind of was following that path because I felt like it made sense in a way. Um, and it fit enough that that's where I was kind of directing my undergraduate studies. Um, but I was always kind of looking at what other options might be available within biology. And I knew I had a special interest in genetics, but it was kind of hard to figure out exactly what that was going to look like in a career. Um, I always thought of genetics as working in a lab. So I worked in a lab as an undergraduate and did bench work and got my pipetting thumbs nice and strong and um, did all sorts of experiments and had to turn off the lights in the microarray room because it was fluorescent dyes. And, and it was, it worked. I liked it. I liked the material, but it never felt that also didn't feel quite right. So it was just searching and totally by accident, actually in an ethics course, I met a genetic counselor who came in to talk to us and I just, it all kind of clicked. I said, oh, you get to work with genetics, you're involved with research, but you get to see patients and you're in the hospital. Um, And it just took all of these interests that I had and kind of put it into one career. So I did a deep dive um, and I found out that genetic counselors work in a variety of settings. Some genetic counselors work in labs. Some genetic counselors work on research studies. Some genetic counselors work in clinics. And those clinics are not just one clinic. You can work at a cancer center. You can work in a pediatric hospital. You can work in a prenatal center. Um, And so I just felt like there were so many different opportunities within the career. I really wanted to pursue that. Um, Of course, I was a senior by this time, so I had already kind of missed the deadlines for getting my application in. Um, which was actually a blessing in disguise because one of the things that's really challenging about genetic counseling programs is there's not very many. Um, There are definitely new programs on the rise and and different schools that are trying to get programs approved through the American um, Board of Genetic Counseling. But I think last time I checked, it was right around 30 programs in the country. Um, So not even one program per state. And I was up in Seattle for a little bit, and there was no programs in the Pacific Northwest. So there's huge areas of the country where there is no training programs, and that makes it really challenging, especially when people know where they want to be from a 
you know, geographical location and might have to relocate for graduate school. I'm really sorry if you can hear my dogs. Um, but <laughs> there's a, there must be a delivery guy. They go really crazy. They'll stop eventually. Um, so I was a senior and I just decided, you know what, I'm going to go for this. And it was a blessing because the programs are so competitive because there's not that many of them. And so that gap year gave me a really good opportunity to, they're really loud, um, a really good opportunity to get a lot of exposure to genetic counselors. And so I was able at UNC to join the journal club and attend that on a weekly basis and really learn more about different cases, patient exposures. Um, and that was both in prenatal, pediatrics, cancer, adult, research that was going on. Um, and so that gap year gave me a ton of helpful information to solidify, number one, that this was the right career for me. But number two, gave me a lot of things to talk about on my application and in my interviews for graduate school to say, I'm familiar with these different ethical dilemmas that come up, or I'm familiar with... Um, you know, this particular genetic condition, because I've heard a, a journal club, um, I read an article about individuals that have mutations in this particular gene. Um, so that gap year was kind of a blessing. Um, but then I interviewed and I ended up getting accepted to the program at the University of Colorado, um, which their main campus is in Boulder, but their medical campus is in Denver, actually Aurora, which is right outside of Denver. So I was born and raised in North Carolina, so packed up all my bags and got a U-Haul and <laughs> drove across the country to Denver, um, which was great, which was great for me. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, graduate school is, it's a two-year program. Most programs are two years. There's a couple different programs where you can do a little bit of a different aim. So I know... Um, John Hopkins has a program where you can actually get a master's of public health and um, a master's degree in genetic counseling, which looking back is awesome. <laughs> um, but there's a couple different programs that have slightly different aims like that. Um, but it's a two-year program. Typically you start your first semester is mostly classes and maybe a couple of clinical observations. And then your second semester, your first year, and then your summer, are rotations with some classes and then your last two semesters are primarily observation clinical rotations and with like a minuscule amount of classes um, and it's great the one thing that's unique about genetic counseling schools is that the program is very small most programs are six people eight people ten people um, Sarah Lawrence has usually the largest program and there's about 20 students that are um, that are accepted into the Sarah Lawrence program. But overall, the classes are really, really small. So you're with a, um, it's kind of neat to have a, a tighter group in graduate school, um, kind of people that are doing the exact same thing that you are. Um, but that also is because there's not enough genetic counselors working to train a ton of incoming students. So you can kind of see how the limitations continue to cause problems, right? There's not that many people, so we can't train that many people, so we can't accept that many graduate students, and that, that cycle goes on. Um, but programs are definitely trying to expand and getting really creative with rotations 
um, like rotations in laboratories or even rotations outside of a, a kind of typical practice. Um, so we can really try to accept more students so that we can have more genetic counselors. Um, so that's a lot about training. I don't know if anyone had any particular questions about training or um, education with genetic counseling. I've got um, one question about the certification process. Yeah. I, how was that for you? <laughs> yeah. So the certification exam is challenging, of course. I think any board exam is challenging. Um, but I was really lucky. So my program did a comprehensive um, examination at the end of my master's degree, which not all programs do. And I remember thinking, I don't want to have to take a certificate, sort of like a comprehensive exam at the end of my master's. That's going to be really hard. But it was actually, again, a blessing in disguise because what it made me do is gather all of my materials, put together a study schedule, get a notebook, gather all my materials, organize everything, and was really great because then when my certification exam came up, I was really prepared. I had already done all that kind of heavy lifting for studying. And so it made, and, and actually, if you look back, my program had one of the higher passing rates for the certification exam because, I think, because we had that comprehensive exam that really helped us put everything together. Um, so that's something to, you know, kind of think about. It's, it's hard in the moment, but it really does prepare you. Um, the other thing that you need for certification is a logbook. So while you're in graduate school, all the cases that you're involved in, you will log um, and you'll have your supervisor sign off on. So you have to have a certain number of cases and then the diversity of cases. So certain prenatal, pediatric, adult cancer. Um, and my program actually had a metabolic rotation as well. So those um, cases, the, that, that log book is actually showing, you know, how much clinical exposure you've had. So the, the certification exam is the log book and then the exam, and you submit all of that to the board um, for, your, for your certification. And certain states, even more complicated, certain states have licensure. So if you're in a licensure state, then you Licensure within, within that state. North Carolina currently does not have licensure. Um, so your certification exam kind of gets you what, what you need. But when I was in Washington state, I had to also do um, get a licensure, which doesn't really, it's nothing extra. It's just submitting all of your stuff to the licensure board. And then you have to get CEUs and, and your continuing education credits and um, kind of show that you're continuing within the field in order to continue getting your licensure. Does that answer your question? Definitely. Thank okay. you. Yeah. So I can definitely talk more about my day-to-day, -day, but did anyone else have questions about education? Okay. Um, so I mentioned that there's a diversity of roles of genetic counselors. Um, so I think one of the benefits of this field is number one, that there's a lot of different roles that someone can do, but two, there's a lot of flexibility in actually changing what you do. So once you get your certification, um, you really have a lot of options. And so just my 
my history, I started out as a cancer genetic counselor in the Charlotte metro area. And I did cancer counseling for two and a half years. So I saw patients with personal or family history of breast cancer, personal or family history of colon cancer. And you get a personal history, you gather a family history, and then you talk with that person. Does your history, is it suggestive of a hereditary cancer syndrome? So do we see early ages at diagnosis, a lot of people in the family diagnosed certain types of cancer that make us think a hereditary background? And if so, we can order genetic testing. Or is this more of a low likelihood to be a genetic etiology? You know, later onsets, not many people in the family diagnosed. And you can still, anyone can get genetic testing. It's just, what's your pretest probability of actually coming back with a gene change? Um, so having those conversations, um, and that was really great. I loved clinic, but I found myself wanting to do more kind of research aims, so more statistical analysis. So I was taking all the tests that I ordered and looking how many came back positive, how many came back negative, how many came back with variants of uncertain significance where we didn't quite understand what we saw. Um, and I was doing all this analysis and kind of thinking, I think I like research, but there wasn't really that opportunity in that particular job. Um, and so after about three years, I transitioned and went to Seattle Children's Hospital, uh, which was a completely different role. And I took on genetic counseling in the pediatric world. Um, and my focus there was really neurogenetics. So brain malformations, epilepsy, um, intellectual disabilities, um, neuro kind of neurodegenerative conditions, um, which was super interesting. I learned a whole ton, um, but I also got to be involved in research, um, which the genetic etiology of a lot of these neurological conditions is not known. So a lot of these kids are actually being enrolled into research because clinical testing might not find their 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 answer. So getting enrolling them into research studies that do things like whole exome sequencing sequencing where we're looking at everything and really trying to sort through what could be associated with the features that we see for this child. Um, and so that was really neat getting exposure to research, getting exposure to um, IRB, which is institutional review boards, like how do we set up research? How do we make sure that we're treating people fairly, that they're really getting good consent and understanding what a research project is and how a research project might be different from clinical testing, which people hear, you can get genetic testing for free. And they're like, yeah, sign me up for that. But not understanding that that means you might not get a report back you might not hear from us for months, even years. You know, there's all these differences with research. So making sure that people really understand what research genetic is and what clinical genetic testing is. Um, and then I loved that job, but um, I started a family. I have a one-year-old and being across <laughs> the country from my family was super challenging and also very exciting. Expensive. So I started looking at other opportunities and being from North Carolina, it's always been a dream of mine to work at UNC. So when I saw a job opportunity, I jumped at it and I was lucky enough to join the team in December of last year. So I'm still kind of new at UNC, especially because only a few months of mine were actually 
real life. And then the past few months have been this other alternate universe that we're all living in right now. Um, but at UNC, I'm also, I get to continue to do clinic with adult and cancer. I get to do research. I'm lucky enough to work with the PPMH and, and think about the different projects that they're involved in. Um, and then get to do super cool opportunities like this, where I get to talk to students and, um, Hopefully, we'll just expand in all those different roles over time. So you can see there's a lot going on, but also um, my training has prepared me for all of these different roles. And I kind of get to put on different hats depending on the day. And for me, that's super beneficial because I feel like I'm always learning and I get enough diversity in my job where I'm never bored. There's always new stuff going on. And, um, and I feel solid on the information that I know, but I always get new opportunities to be involved in things that are really kind of new in, in the world of genetics and that's super exciting to me. I feel like I'm doing a whole lot of talking, so I would really like for someone to ask me some questions. <laughs> So going off what you mentioned um, with having moving closer to your family and everything, how has genetic counseling in this career affected your lifestyle? It's a really good question. Um, so I will say that many people who enter the field of genetic counseling in my you know, limited uh, exposure, very go-getting people, right? Like we all... A lot, I have to be completely honest, over 90% of genetic counselors are women. <laughs> um, and I feel like it, the career kind of attracts this like very intelligent, motivated, excited, energetic individual. Um, not that I'm calling myself intelligent, but, um, but we, we want to dive in. And that is awesome, but I do see burnout consistently in the field. And I think it's because we all dive in out of grad school. We're like running out of the gate. We want to get involved in everything. We happen to maybe take on too much. And then we wonder, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to get this all done? Um, and so I think from a career perspective, I've noticed that genetic counseling, genetic counseling training programs are not now actually really including burnout in your core in your courses and really mentioning that this is a common thing that we see um, because you dive in and then your personal life kind of takes a backseat and you know a lot of different things are less important because you're just so excited because there's so much that you can do and you want to do it all because it's all really cool um, and so burnout's pretty common um, and I think it's really important for young professionals to always know that saying yes does not make you a better employee. If you say yes to too many things, you actually do a bad job at everything that you're doing because nothing ever gets your full attention. Nothing ever gets a hundred percent of you. Everything kind of gets like 70% here and 70% here. Um, whereas saying like, Hey, I have a lot on my plate. I really want to do a good job on what I got. So maybe I can, I can take that on down the road, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't really have capacity right now is actually kind of the best thing you can do um, because 
you'll do a better job at what you're what you've committed to. And also you'll have a life outside of your career, which will then re-energize you to make sure that you are a good professional. Um, so, and then if you have a kid, your life just goes to pure chaos at all times. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think that it's important to know that, that there's a lot out there and, um, and that there's, there's never going to be a, a, there's never, if you're bored, there's the National Society of Genetic Counselors. They're always looking for people to join their different programs or different committees or different boards. There's research projects that are always looking for genetic counselor advice. You know, there's support programs that are always looking for genetic counselors um, and their perspectives. So there's always going to be different things to do. It's just learning what's going to work best for you and then managing all of your professional duties with the life that you want to have outside of work. What does research sound like or look like right now with everything going on with COVID as far as like participants and just being able to be in the lab? Has that all come to a halt for you guys or is it transitioning back? Super good question. Um, So I have exposure at UNC. I can, I'll just talk about my exposures at UNC. Um, There's two research projects that I'm, involved with. Um, One is called NC Genes that recruits patients and does whole exome sequencing um, to return those results. And exactly like what you said, that's kind of been on pause. Number one, because patients aren't coming into the hospital. And so when they're not coming into the hospital, they're not getting consented to be involved in the research. And so there's kind of been this holdup in enrolling new patients. And then the patients that were enrolled prior to this whole thing, um, there's a lot of samples that haven't been able to be analyzed because we've had from mid-March to the beginning of June, there really wasn't anyone in the laboratory. But we now are getting people back in the lab. They're doing shifts and they're doing like, there's minimal capacity in the lab just for social distancing purposes. But we do have some people coming into the lab to actually process those samples. And it's interesting from a genetic counseling perspective because I did the pipetting before and I'm not doing that now. But what genetic counselors are doing is actually looking at the data and determining what we think might be a mutation. um, And does that fit the clinical phenotype of the patient? Um, and what do we want to report out? One of the things I didn't think about that much before is when you do genetic testing, you're always looking for your answer. What caused the features that we see for this person? What I didn't think so much about is what other mutations might that person have that's not related to why we did the test, but could be important for them in their life, right? So if you're testing a five-year-old because they have intellectual disability, But then you go and look and they end up having a mutation in a gene that causes colon cancer in adulthood. Do you report that? It's probably not why the parents elected to do this research, but many could argue that ethically you have an obligation to tell them because you found it. So there's a lot of, that's why that consent process is so important is bringing that kind of stuff up to the patient and the family when they're enrolling to say, do you want this information if we find it? And they get to make that decision for themselves. Um, But again, so the consenting's kind of been on hold. 
the processing was on hold. We are now back in the lab doing some of analyzing these samples and getting these reports back out. Um, but the whole research thing with the other project that I'm, Sabrina and I are involved in has really just kind of been on pause because we can't really move forward with meeting with other physicians or um, really our patient exposure is pretty limited at this time. And so a lot of things are just, they're moving forward, but like maybe at like five miles per hour instead of 45. (laughs) We're trying to keep moving, but there's just only so much we can do given the current situation. Yeah. But the clinical labs are, they're moving forward. They are processing samples. Not exactly sure how they're doing it so quickly. Um, I don't know if I wanna know because if I knew how I might not want them to do it. Um, (laughs) But in clinic, we've actually transitioned 100% to virtual visits, um, which has been an experience. Yeah. I had a quick question about, I know you mentioned ethics. Is there ever like um, a time where you're like, through clinic, I don't know how to say this, right, but like have, it's like ethics but also burnout. Do you ever, when you're studying these like really um, debilitating diseases, do you ever feel like, or have you noticed some of the people that you work with kind of burning out due to like the, kind of the toll, emotional toll? I don't really know how to explain it right, but like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no me, I burn out. <laughs> I worked in neurogenetics. I worked with children that had pretty severe brain malformation. <laughs> And there's a particular case that will stick with me for the rest of my career where a family brought in their three-year-old and said, you know, the pediatrician's concerned. He's not as strong as other kids, but like, he's totally fine. And we did an exam and he was not totally fine. He was extremely delayed. Um, And we ended up doing, and we got an MRI and he had pretty severe, brain changes and we did genetic testing and he was diagnosed with a a lethal condition. He was probably going to pass away before his fifth birthday. And that was just a process of parents coming in and basically thinking like, maybe there's a little bit going on, but really nothing. And us slowly having to say, okay, there is some features that we're concerned about. Let's get an MRI. Okay. Now we have the MRI and there is a brain malformation and brain changes. And then, oh, now we're going to do genetic testing. And we found a, a, a lethal condition. It's neurodegenerative, and he's only going to decline from a neurological perspective. Um, and so, you know, from an ethics standpoint, I think I really struggled because I felt a duty to tell them everything. It's my job as a provider to make sure that they are educated on what's going on. But from a humane perspective, I can't just lay it all out. I can't just throw all this at them and say, like, this is what we're dealing with. Because number one, no, no one can handle that emotionally. But number two, I was going to lose their trust. They weren't going to want to see me anymore. They weren't going to want to talk to me. They weren't going to want to work with me anymore if I just threw all this at them. So it's, it's this kind of give and take of making sure that you are a provider and you're giving them information, but then also you're ethically like, or emotionally, you're, you're 
being sensitive and being, being real, you know, being a real human um, and just saying like, I don't get to cover this all in one hour. Like that's not, that's just not going to happen. Um, we had to figure out how to make that work. So finally we, we get through all of this and then they tell me, well, if this is an autosomal recessive condition and both mom and dad are carriers and the kid is affected, what does that mean for our other son? Well, it means he has a 25% chance. Okay, well, he's completely normal too, right? We do an exam. He's not completely normal. Get an MRI. He's got the same changes. Do genetic testing. Got the exact same condition as his brother. So here we are, parents with two children who are both going to pass away before their fifth birthday. And it's just like, I can't do this. I literally was like, I can't do this. I can't tell her this. I can't go through this again. I can't, we already did this. Can't do it again. Um, and it was one of the hardest cases I've ever dealt with because there's just nothing to say, you know, there's no good that comes out of this. It's just hard. Um, and I gave way too many hours. I spent way too much time trying to do every, every bit of research, read every single paper I could on this condition, just like it was going to make it better if I knew everything. Right. Um, and I think it was a, it was a really good lesson for me of just making sure that I was the provider that they needed, but also that I continued to take care of myself because if I was tired, if I was kind of emotionally a wreck, I wasn't giving them what they needed. I wasn't being the provider that they needed. Um, and so it's interesting how one case can really like burn you out. Um, and finally it came down to like the provide another one of the providers that I was working with being like, you can't fix this. You know, you just have to, you have to be there and support them and, and answer their questions, but you also have to leave them alone. <laughs> you can't fix it and they need, they need time without you. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that totally answers your question, but I think, yeah, the ethics are always gonna be a debate. It's always gonna be a sliding scale. It's gonna be different with every single case, but I think a strong ethical foundation. And then again, kind of going back to, um, to Jasmine's point too, about like balance of, of career and personal life, you have to take care of yourself in order to be the provider that a lot of your patients need. Thank you. Yeah. Going off of what you just said, when you're studying in your program, do they kind of teach you conversations or, or, or are you just like left trying to figure it out on your own? No, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's the whole goal of doing the clinical rotations is getting this exposure and seeing that some days you're going to walk in and the case is going to be really textbook. You know, you're going to have the conversation. The patient might be, I mean, sometimes it's just a basic conversation and other days it is like full on a hundred percent, a counseling session where you're dealing with denial and you're dealing with anger and you're dealing with sadness. Um, and so the clinical rotations are super beneficial because you're getting a ton of exposure and you're seeing. So as usually the way a rotation will go, especially at the beginning is you're just observing 
you might prep the case. You might say, oh, it's they, they think that they might have a mutation in the BRCA1 and 2 genes. So I'm going to do my research on what that means and what the inheritance of that is and what the red flags are for the family history. But you actually, when the patient comes in, you're not doing anything. You're just sitting in the room and listening to your supervisor. Um, but usually by the end of the rotation, you're doing more. You're taking the family history. You're taking the personal history. You might even dive into some of the psychosocial stuff. Um, so the rotations are super helpful in giving you that exposure, but also letting you try on different roles. Um, so slowly but surely, usually in your first rotation, you'll barely touch some of these psychosocial things. But by the end of your, you know, your second to last or your last rotation, your supervisors are probably going to challenge you and say, hey, I want you to try to ask some of these questions. I want you to really try to, to talk with the patient about, you know, what it means to be 32 with a diagnosis of breast cancer. I want you to check in with their mental health. I want you to, um, so you get more and more exposure throughout your, um, throughout your training. And then my program actually had an interviewing class where um, we interviewed each other. So one of us was a patient and one of us was a provider. And we kind of practiced some of these conversations, um, which some days was just us like busting out laughing because it was like, how are we supposed to really be acting? Like I'm supposed to be, I'm acting like I'm a tough patient and I just end up laughing. But it's good practice, even with your peers to to try some of these questions out and figure out what sounds really awkward and might not be a good question to ask versus like, what, how do you, how do you word these things to really try to make sure that you're being sensitive to whatever the patient is going through and what might work for one patient might totally bomb with another patient. And you have to go through that in order to learn. Okay. Note to self, don't word it like that next time. That didn't work for me. Um, so to answer your questions, I think the rotations are super helpful. And then some programs will have classes where you get to kind of try out some of these different techniques. Thank you. Yeah. What type of support does your, or your job and then previous employers that you've worked with, um, yeah, what type of support do they give you guys in the sense of like, since y'all are dealing with such difficult cases and obviously a lot of burnout problems yeah different different employers kind of have different strategies for these things um i think that i think there's a pretty common theme in the medical fear field where you're saying like oh i'm the provider i don't need to go to another provider like i know already what they're gonna do but you don't and even if you do know what they're doing you're, it, that's not your role during that time. So there's been a lot of, especially when there's been traumatic events, I think there's a, usually on staff, there's going to be someone that is an employee um, counselor, emotional support, help. Um, and it's definitely when, when I was working in the neurogenetics group, there was a um, some of the cases they kind of required patients or they kind of required patient providers to check in um, with, it's not HR, but it was kind of like through HR um, just to, to check in and make sure everything was going okay. Um, 
I think that one of the best things that I've experienced in my career is just the support that's available through your coworkers. Um, so my first job, I was actually the only genetic counselor at that hospital. And it was super challenging because I didn't feel one, I was a new grad. So I was like, I can't admit that I have any problems because I need to show everyone that like, I'm legit, right? I'm a new grad. Like they need to know that like, I was a good hire, like <laughs> big mistake, big mistake. Showing that you are emotionally affected by your patients actually shows a lot of maturity and shows a lot of professionalism. Um, and I learned that. <laughs> so the support that's available through other genetic counselors is invalid because invaluable because they are going to know what you're going through. They've been through similar experiences and sometimes even saying like, Hey, I have this really difficult case and someone's saying, Oh, I had a really difficult case. And these things were super helpful for me. Um, that support is just so important and, and really helps you work through some of the things that you're feeling, but then also kind of motivates you to, to move forward um, and to, to also get access to what resources might be available to you. Um, for some people that's talking in person, for other people, it's, it's online forums. You know, the, the National Society of Genetic Counselor has SIGs, which are called special interest groups. Um, so if you're a cancer counselor, there's a cancer SIG. Um, if you're a pediatric cancer counselor, there's a pediatric SIG. And so you can join these SIGs and say, you know, oh, I have this interesting patient. What do people think about it? But it's also, I'm going through this really challenging thing. You know, does anyone have any advice or input or resources that might be helpful? Um, so it's, it's figuring out what's available through your employer, but I think a lot of it's also figuring out what might be available um, just within your community of, of genetic counselors or your genetics group. Um, one of my favorite resources when I was at the cancer center was there was actually a social worker for the patients, not for the providers, but I would go into her office very frequently and be like, hi, can we, can I have five minutes? And it, it, it's just learning who, who you feel comfortable with and what's available to you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I had a question about genetic testing for kids. Do yeah. you or would genetic counselors kind of recommend children to get genetic testing if you know that there's a family history or even if you don't know there's a family history, but if you just want to make sure everything's okay? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, when I worked in pediatrics, most of the time that a child was referred to us was for a personal history of something. Um, you know, kids born with a congenital malformation. So they were born with a heart defect or um, they were born with a congenital anomaly of some sort, you know, their, um, their hands weren't completely formed, they had craniostenostosis where the um, sutures of their skull were prematurely fused or something along those lines, um, or the child had developmental delay or um, kidney failure or something that said, hey, we're suspicious of a genetic etiology because this feature that this child has. But every once in a while, and in those cases, it was it was more straightforward to say that we think they should get genetic testing because we see a feature of a genetic condition. So therefore, again, our pretest probability is high and 
most of the time that we do genetic testing, it's because we want to know, are they at risk for other complications? You know, if, if you have intellectual disability and we find that you have a huge deletion on chromosome 22, you could also be at risk for seizures. And it's beneficial to know that beforehand so that you can get plugged into neurology and they can follow you appropriately. So if your seizures develop, you have access to care quickly and they can talk about medications. Um, so in cases where there's a, a feature, I think it's a little bit more straightforward of, of the benefits of genetic testing. For kids with a family history, I think it's a little bit more complicated um, because typically what we wanna do with a family history is test the person who has the features. Because if you have the features, your pretest probability of having a gene mutation is highest. Um, so, oh, this kid has a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. His dad was diagnosed at 30. Okay, let's do genetic testing in dad because if he has the mutation, we know his child is then gonna have a 50% chance of having that change. Whereas if we just test the child and they don't have it, what does that mean? Does it mean they don't have, they're not gonna have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or did we just not test the right genes? Or is this something that we just don't totally understand because we don't know what caused dad's features? But then there's cases where dad's not available. Um, that's not in the picture, but we know he had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So do we test the kid for it because we can't test dad? Um, and I think most providers would say yes, because if we find that the kid has a heart issue, we're going to recommend echocardiograms and we're going to follow them accordingly. So there's going to be a change in that child's medical management if the test comes back positive. Um, but a, a family history of something is always super complicated because you have to take so many things into consideration. Is the person that has the features, are they available? Um, are they willing to do genetic testing? I've had parents say like, I don't wanna know, but I wanna know for my kid. I'm like, well, that's challenging. <laughs> like, how do we, um, I don't wanna know for myself, and it's gonna make me feel guilty if I found out that I gave this to my kid, but I want my kid to be monitored appropriately for it. So that's when the, some of these counseling, you know, counseling roles come into play and really working through how do you address the situation and make sure that everyone, everyone has autonomy um, and everyone's able to make their own decisions, but also we're doing what's best for everyone and getting the information, make sure that everyone is, is followed appropriately um, so does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Okay. So sometimes it's a little bit easier where they come in and they say like, mom has a BRCA mutation. It's like, okay, well, you have, any child of that, that individual has a 50% chance, right? It's a autosomal dominant condition, 50-50 chance for any other kids. But BRCA is an adult onset condition. We don't see those things until adulthood. So is there any benefit to testing a five-year-old for a cancer predisposition at five? Probably not because we're not gonna do anything different for her, right? There's no benefit to testing her at five. Now, when she's 18, we probably wanna let her know and also let her know that it's her decision if this is something that she wants to do, give her that autonomy to make the decision of if she wants genetic testing. Um, and also if we're not gonna start mammograms until she's 25, do we test her at 18? 
or should we wait until she's 25? Because at 25 is when we actually do something different. And I've talked to an 18 year old who told me, well, I need to figure out if I want to go to college and spend, you know, my money, the, the money for college, or do I want to go do something different? Because if I have a high risk of breast cancer, like I, it's going to change the way that I live my life. It's like, okay, well, that's valid. That's your choice. Um, and also I've heard people say like, if I have a gene mutation, it's going to change the way I do my family planning. You know, like I want to have my kids earlier in life so that I can have my ovaries removed earlier because I'm at an increased risk for ovarian cancer. Or I, I want to consider PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, where we actually test embryos for a mutation and use the IVF process to only implant embryos that don't have the gene mutation that my family has. Uh, so there's so many different things that can come into play, but um, that's why genetic counselors are always busy and always have patients to see, and uh, and there's not enough of us. So if any of you are interested, I highly encourage the career. <laughs> so do you guys... Uh, obviously, there's a lot of ethical issues involved. So do you all work closely with Elsie to make like these decisions? So there's a lot of guidelines that are available. Um, the ACMG, so the American College of Medical Genetics, makes position statements often. Um, and it's a lot of times it's these ethical dilemmas that present themselves. Um, so these, these groups um, make guideline statements to help provide a little bit of clarity when it comes to these kind of muddy ethical situations. Um, but also most hospitals do have an ethics board. Um, so in a particular case, if you can't find a guideline that fits really well, usually it would, it would be taking it to the ethics committee um, and getting the perspectives. And ethics committees are super helpful because there may or may not be a geneticist on the board, but there might be a cardiologist and a primary care physician and, you know, an OBGYN provider. And so their perspectives can be super valid because they're thinking about this patient maybe slightly different than you're thinking about the patient or you're thinking about this scenario. Um, and oftentimes ethics boards will have a member of the community. So someone who's not, an, not a medical provider. And that actually, to me, has been sometimes the most beneficial because you're getting a perspective from someone who their, their view can just be so different. They're able to kind of step back from the medical perspective and think about like, okay, well, what about this aspect of the care? What about these things that we don't always think about first um, when, we're, when we're going through kind of the ethical dilemma? Um, so... The ethics, ethics boards are super helpful. Guidelines are super helpful. And then again, I kind of fall back on my coworkers a lot too. Um, I'm saying like, I have this situation and has anyone been in a similar situation or what do we think is, is relevant here? Um, so those are my experiences. Thank you. Yeah. I had a quick question. It's, it's kind of, this kind of relaxed, but um, since you've been back at UNC, have you like noticed a difference in being a student and like working there? Yeah. Um, 
I will say that there was like one day where I didn't have, I had kind of like a free afternoon. I was like, I'm going for a walk. And I like walked around the quad and I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, It just, it brought back a ton of memories. And um, I think that it's a really special experience to be able to go back to an institution um, that you were a student in and now be a faculty member and kind of get that different perspective. There's some things that are exactly the same, right? And then there's other things that are totally different. Um, And I think that going back has really showed me just how naive I was when I was a student. Uh, Cause I, I don't know. I thought I knew a lot when I was 20 years old. Um, and I did, I knew a little bit, but, but it's interesting going back and just seeing like the world is so much bigger than your college campus. And, and for me, I'm from a smaller town in North Carolina. And so going to Chapel Hill was kind of like, this is the big time. Like this is the big show, you know? And then it, it was at the time and, and UNC is, is, I mean, I'm, I'm, fan of the university for many different reasons um but you know it it's it it, it's a small slice of the world you know it's a it's a small slice of the state it's a small slice of the county you know and and so it's it's been really helpful for me to i think in my experience to leave and then come back um and really be able to to see the different perspectives and see that I really didn't know all that much um, at the time when I was a student. And that's okay. That's, that's totally valid. Um, But this is a huge world and there's so much going on. And although I think that the research going on at UNC is top notch, there's research going on all over the place. And just because UNC is not doing it doesn't mean it's not the best or doesn't mean that it's not great. Um, and I, I will say it out loud, even though I don't, I can't believe I'm going to say it. Duke has super legit stuff going on too. <laughs> like one of the girls that I went to graduate school is now the lead genetic counselor over at Duke cancer center. And they are amazing. They have a ton going on. And just because I didn't like Duke when I was, you know, 18 years old doesn't mean that there's not super legit stuff going on over there. And and the partnerships that are available, I think in genetics, one of the coolest things is one institution is never going to be able to to figure it out. Um, And so the partnerships that happen in genetics are so great. Um, And it takes multi-institutional research happening in order to really make an impact. Um, And so opening, you know, loving what you love in your heart, but opening your eyes a little bit to the fact that like, it's a huge world, there's a ton going on and you, you wanna be a part of it, but you don't get to be all of it, you know? And, And you, are going to contribute what you can contribute, but really deferring to the people who have specialists in different fields and different areas is going to make whatever you're doing that much stronger. I don't know, Catherine, does that kind of like... It does. <laughs> it does. Thank you. you. You go to UNC, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So... 
it's the best. I mean, I still think it's the best, but. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have um, any advice, and this is towards like education, but like as an undergraduate, like things to do to prepare if you want to go to, um, or go to graduate school for a genetic counseling degree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the number one recommendation that I have for anyone interested in the field is to get exposure, Um, whether that be um, just just the National Society of Genetic Counselor, which um, I sent Sabrina some resources that she can distribute to you guys after. Um, But if you're interested in the career, I highly recommend going to it's NSGC, National Society of Genetic Counselors. they have a directory where you can actually go in and type your zip code or um, your, you know, where you're located and it'll pull up genetic counselors that are local to you. Um, and if they have their email address there, it means that they have welcome student contact. And so I know blind emails are awkward and can feel a little bit weird, but I highly recommend doing it because we've all done it. And, um, getting access to someone in the field is going to help because whether it's shadowing in clinic, getting invited to a journal club, um, you know, seeing different educational opportunities that might be available locally. um, Or even when I was, once I got my interviews for graduate school, I had two genetic counselors give me practice interviews, like mock interviews. so getting connected with a genetic counselor locally to you can be super helpful so that you're getting exposure to the career um, and they can point you in the directions of different things that could be beneficial for you, whether it's journal articles or, you know, lectures. There's so many different like telemedicine or teleconferencing lectures that are going on now. Um, and so that can be really helpful in just figuring out what's around you and what can you potentially get involved in kind of see the different perspectives and really see if this is a career that you're interested in. And if so, most applications are going to ask for clinical shadowing experience. Um, So the sooner you've done that, you know, the more exposure you can get and the the stronger your application could be. Um, So it's kind of hard because you kind of have to like do these strange things, like, an, I mean, I hate signing, sending emails to people I don't know. Um, but I will say most genetic counselors have done it when they were trying to get into training. So we're all used to it. Um, and the other thing I have to say is if you do send one of those emails, don't be super offended if you don't get a response right back because most genetic counselors inboxes are a hot mess. So just be patient. And if you don't hear back within a few weeks, don't be afraid to maybe just follow up with one more email and say, just, just touch and base. Just wanted to make sure this didn't get buried in your inbox. Um, and that's okay because a lot of us do get behind on emails, which is really sad and unfortunate. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks everybody. We'll Thank see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.